fancy all the words and stuff. Yeah, looks good for songs. Okay, perfect. Um, for the sermon slides, Ian just has like scripture and quotes and stuff, so that's all you'll really have to. Yeah, I'm just uh, running through them, and then I'm going to ask. I'll talk to him before to see what he wants, how he's going to let me know to move on to the new slides. Yeah, I mean, I think like if he if he like mentions the slide, like he'll say something from this, like from the verse or yep. Isaiah or whatever. Yep. Um, once he's done saying it, like you're, I feel like you could, because I think I put like the title in between, it's right? Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's so if ever there's kind of that like low point where you aren't at the yeah, just slides yet, just, uh, you can just sit on that too. Yep. Um, the important thing is always just staying in within that slide area because that's when it actually records the audio is when you're in that section in like in between the two recording things. So let's oh, start definitely. recording. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's as long as you're in that. Pastor you are, are preaching. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's easy enough. So we have a couple minutes. We'll go. Uh, we'll go to the prayer room for 9:30. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you again. Uh, we were just saying in the uh, the back room before the service in prayer. Uh, I've been here a handful of times, uh, just in the last uh, 15 or 16 months, visiting sometimes just in a service and sometimes being up here, and it's always been good. I've always had a good time here. So thanks for the warm welcome, and uh, Lord willing, unless things go really poorly, I'll be here again. (laughs) I want to uh, bring a message to you today about the fear of the Lord and what that is and what that isn't. Here's a quote from a book written by Ed Welch called, When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says, the fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. The fear of man. In the uh, book, he explains that a lot of us and a lot of our anxieties are symptoms of the fear of what others think about us, of what others might say about us, or do to us, we live a lot of our days with this low-level terror of being embarrassed, of being rejected, of being exposed for something, and we'll work hard to make sure that doesn't happen. When does your fear of man show up? My fear of man shows up when I talk about Jesus with my neighbors. What are they going to think about me? My fear of man shows up when I attend a parent's meeting at my kid's school. My fear of man shows up when I put on a bathing suit. It's there when I must ask for directions from a stranger or ask for forgiveness from my wife, when I have to confront a brother in Christ, when I have to speak in front of people or make decisions in my own home. You can relate, I'm sure. Maybe uh, some of you here are small group leaders. You lead a Bible study in your home. Do you ever prepare well, partly to impress the other members of the group? 
You know, and when the time comes to lead, do you ever wonder, will people like what we talked about? Will I do a good job? Will they see me as lazy, unprepared, an unfaithful Christian, a bad leader, a boring leader? And afterward, do you ever wait for someone to tell you what a good job you did? (laughs) The fear of man, it paralyzes us. It sucks the joy out of life. It makes life chaotic and exhausting. And it's no wonder that the Bible calls the fear of man a trap. It's a trap. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. So like a captured animal, when you give into the fear of others, you can't live. You can't live how God is calling you to live. And so how do you escape that trap? How do you escape that trap? According to the Scriptures, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. And learning to fear the Lord is the antidote to anxiety. Learning to fear the Lord, that's the antidote to anxiety. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom means living life fully, fully as God intended, as God designed. So learning to fear God is the key to a flourishing life. Learning to fear the Lord is the antidote to all those anxieties. But maybe that sounds a little strange, you know, fearing God, fearing the Lord. And it sounds strange because the Bible also tells Christians not to fear, not to be afraid. Here's an example, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. That verse says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So Christians don't need to be afraid of God. That's what this verse says. You don't need to fear God because fear has to do with punishment. And if all your punishment for rebellion against God has been absorbed by Jesus at the cross, you don't need to fear God's condemnation. You don't need to fear His wrath any longer. You have peace with God. He loves you as His own. His glorious presence is no longer your doom. It's your hope. Don't be afraid of God, brothers and sisters. And yet, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do you you put those two things together? And it's not just an Old Testament, New Testament thing. If you read the, uh, the apostles Paul and Peter and John in their letters, all of them command Christians today, fear God. Fear God. So what are we supposed to make of that? You know, unfortunately, we sometimes treat the fear of the Lord like the gloomy negative of our relationship with God, right? Our relationship with God is very good. Fear of the Lord, it's this gloomy negative part of it. And I'll pick on Matt. Where'd Matt go? Is he here? There he is. He was downstairs. Well, good. He's not here. I can pick on him. I'm going to pick on Matt because really he's the only guy I know. So I'm going to pick on him. And everybody likes Matt. I like Matt. I play tennis with Matt. And uh, I like beating Matt. (laughs) But we like Matt. No one would ever say this about Matt. But 
But imagine you didn't like Matt, okay? Nobody would ever not like Matt. But imagine you didn't like Matt, and there's this big party. There's this big party. And somebody asks you afterwards, hey, how was the party? You would say, you know, it was great. It was great. What a blast. You know, Matt was there, so. But it was good. But it was good. And sometimes we can think like that about our Christian faith. Someone might say, hey, how's your relationship with God? And you'd say, it's great. It's great. I love Him. But you know, I fear Him. But it's good. But it's good. But that's not how Scripture describes the fear of the Lord. It's not the counterweight to all the enjoyable parts about knowing God. Over and over in Scripture, we see that the right fear of God is a response to His goodness. It's a response to His goodness. So I want to open up my Bible here. To, this is a Jeremiah chapter 32. And in Jeremiah chapter 32, there is a promise to Old Testament believers about New Testament faith. So this is a promise to Old Testament saints about what gospel New Testament faith is going to look like. In chapter 32, in verses 38 to 40, it's God makes this promise. He says, and they, talking about us, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So the fear of God is something that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings about in people. Right? This is a promise about what our experience with God is going to be like. And the fear of God is something that the gospel of Jesus brings. And now if you just look at the next chapter here in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 33, Jeremiah explains what the fear is going to be a response to. Why do they fear? Why do we fear? Well, God promises, he says in verse 8 of chapter 33, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble. Why? Because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Verses 8 and 9 there is a catalog of blessing. It's a catalog of blessing. There's no threats. There's no scare tactics. There's no fear me or else. The Lord promises cleansing, forgiveness, to do good. And the people fear and tremble. That's the response. They fear and tremble precisely because of all the good that God will do for them. You know, in, in our culture where we prize safety, and comfort and pleasure, fear is always a bad thing, 
right? That's, that's, our, that's our common experience. Fear is always a bad thing. But the Bible, and we just read it, the Bible says fear can also be a response to something good. Fear can also be a response to something good. The word fear in Hebrew is a very physical word, and it expresses shaking and trembling. But there are different ways to experience that, aren't there? A soldier hunkered down in a building, he trembles as bombs fall all around him, but a groom also trembles and gets weak in the knees watching his bride walk down the aisle. Fear describes them both, doesn't it? But in very different ways. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord in the Bible means to be overwhelmed. It means to be controlled by the wonderful greatness and love of God. You have this trembling awe. You find God fearfully beautiful. You ever thought about God like that? He's fearfully beautiful. I've sometimes uh, taught um, in Sunday school or in classes, uh, you know, in pe- people to, to think about the fear of the Lord, instead like respect God. That's what fear of the Lord is like, to respect God or to be in awe of God, to help people understand w- what it is. And those are all correct. Those are all correct things. But I'd hate to lose the word fear. I don't think we should translate it out of the Bible. <laughs> I'd hate to lose that word fear because fear describes the intensity of the love and the joy that a Christian learns to have for God. You know, I read somebody commenting on this, and they observed this. They said, I love pizza. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my God. And hopefully you understand that I don't mean I love them all in the same way. (laughs) Fear is the degree of love. Fear is the degree of love that I have for God. It is a trembling, wondering love and joy. It is a proper love for God a fearful love, one that trembles. And that's how God wants you to learn how to fear Him. That's how He wants you to fear Him. Because here's the alternatives. If you fear God without loving Him, if you fear God without loving Him, all you've got left is terror. That's your God. That's all you've got left, and you end up in a relationship with him where you're trying to manipulate him or you're begrudging him your entire life because you don't love him. You don't love him. You need things from him, but you don't love him. Here's the other alternative. If you love God without fearing him, if that's your God, if you love him without fearing him, eventually all you'll have left is sentimentality, sentimentality fond memories without any drive for holiness, a God who suits you, a God who is more like a cat in your life than the lion. That's where we start. The fear of the Lord is the antidote to anxiety and the fear of man, and that doesn't mean a gloomy dread of God. Fear of the Lord is a trembling love in response to His goodness. But how do you get it? 
How do you get there? How do you get that kind of love, that kind of fear for the Lord? Well, look with me here again in your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 130, verse 4. Very curious little verse here in Psalm 130, verse 4. And it says, talking about the Lord, it says, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Well, that's a strange little verse, isn't it? It's a strange little verse. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense if it said, but with you there is forgiveness, that you may be loved? Isn't that how you would write it? <laughs> or maybe, but with you there is judgment, that you may be feared? Isn't that how you would write it? But no, it says, with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. So this little verse is telling us that the fear of the Lord grows best in forgiveness. Where does fear of the Lord come from? It grows best in forgiveness, in receiving and wondering at the Lord's great forgiveness for us. So Christians, if you want to grow in fear of the Lord, look to God's ultimate act of forgiveness. If you want to grow in fear of the Lord and right fear of the Lord, look to the cross of your forgiveness. And why don't we just do that for a moment? You know, all of us know deep down that something is wrong with our world. All of us know that, that things aren't right. The world has been vandalized by sin. We see it in our relationships. We see it in our wars, our work, our politics our own failure to live up to our own standards. But it's more than just being damaged by sin. We are also at fault. We are not only victims, we are culprits. We have done this. I have done this. Sin isn't only out there. Wherever I go, I bring with me my own selfishness, my own idolatry, my own greed. And if I want to know the heights of God's forgiveness, the first stop is going to be the depths of my own sinfulness. The tendency of our culture is to minimize the idea that people are guilty, right? We downplay that. We minimize the idea that people are, are guilty of wrongdoing. We ignore guilt. We explain it away. We talk about it only in psychological terms. The world sees guilt and sin as social conventions, just something someone else is putting on you. But the more we deny guilt before God, the more damage it does, the more pain it causes. I think about the rise of cutting amongst teenagers. It was in the news again just recently. Somehow someone thinking that the internal shame and guilt and pain that they can soothe that through self-mutilation. Self Somehow I'll find relief through that, exchanging one pain for another. There's a Christian who wrote in response to this. He said, Christianity can deal with cutting because we too believe that it is only in the shedding of blood that true relief and forgiveness is found. But true forgiveness and relief comes not through mutilating ourselves, but through the stripes on the back of Jesus. By his stripes, we are healed. He was pierced, he was cut for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. That's the forgiveness of the cross. That's the forgiveness of the cross. Jesus Christ dies instead of you. (laughs) He takes your sin and all of its consequences on himself so that you can be free. You can be at peace with the most important being in the universe, God. Jesus went to the cross to absorb the full force of God's wrath towards sin so that you might be saved. (laughs) There's a woman named Vanita Rendell Reisner. She was born in India, but she grew up in in a Montreal hospital to get treatment for polio. The damage from her infection left her bedridden for most of her childhood in this hospital. And when she could walk, it was with a severe limp. And she felt like her disability made her unpopular or it made her unimportant. But she realized if she was sweet, if she was sweet to the nurses, if she was sweet to her mom and family, if she was well-behaved, people would like her. People would applaud her. And so she covered up her bitterness over her brokenness. She covered up her bitterness with people-pleasing. You ever tried that strategy? She covered over it with people-pleasing. But when she was in high school, there was a friend of hers who shared the gospel with her, and she began reading her Bible. And listen to how she talks about her conversion. She says, God saw beyond my angelic exterior. I felt known, understood, and unconditionally loved. A combination that simultaneously comforted and terrified me. Comfort and terror, love and fear. She said, overcome with excitement and emotion, I knelt by the side of my bed and committed my life to Christ. Forgiveness, being totally exposed and loved. (laughs) That's what we have at the cross. Forgiveness at the cross fills us with trembling love for God. Bible scholar named Michael Reeves, he wrote a great little book on the fear of the Lord. And he says this, he says, without God's forgiveness, we could never approach him and would never want to. Without the cross, God would be only a dreadful judge of whom we would be afraid. Divine forgiveness and our justification by faith alone turn our natural dread of God as sinners into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. What a sweet conversion that is. (laughs) That's the great result of forgiveness. Adoption. Adoption. At the cross, God forgives enemies and adopts them as his own sons and daughters. So the fear that we have for God is more like the fear of a son for his father than the fear of a a slave for his master. (laughs) Christians learn to fear God their father as Jesus, God the Son, fears God the Father. You ever thought that that's how their relationship works too? Listen to how Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, describes Jesus' fear of the Lord in the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11. Talking about Jesus, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. (laughs) And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's talking about Jesus, the Son of God. Isaiah doesn't say that Jesus loves and enjoys God, but also, unfortunately, has to fear him too. No, the fear of the Lord is his delight. 
It's his delight because he's fully accepted by God. And so fear is the kind of adoration Jesus has for the Father. And you know what? As sons and daughters of God, that gets to be our delight too. That gets to be our delight too. So that's where it comes from. That's where you get it. Fear of the Lord is a trembling love, and it grows best in the forgiveness of the cross. And now this brings us all the way back to where we started. The fear of the Lord is trembling love. It grows in the forgiveness of the cross, and that's why it's the antidote to anxiety. That's why it's the antidote to anxiety, the thing that frees you from the trap of the fear of others. Because when you learn to fear the Lord, you learn a fear that eclipses all other fears. You learn a fear that eclipses all other fears. The fear of the Lord swallows them up, swallows them up, and that's how it helps you. It's a better fear. It's a more powerful fear. And I think this is really well illustrated in the Bible with a comparison between two kings, King Saul and King David. You remember those dudes? King Saul and King David. One of the reasons God gives us the historical books of 1 and 2 Samuel is to show us the inward difference between these two men, these two kings. God offered the kingdom to both. Both had the opportunity to flourish, but Saul was stuck in the trap of people-pleasing. He was enslaved to others' opinions and expectations. He chased his own glory and reputation rather than God's. And so he was a slave to his recognition, and it drove him mad. It drove him bonkers. Remember how his life ends? The fear of man lays a trap, and it drives him mad. The first taste of Saul's fear of man is his coronation day, the day when he was anointed king in 1 Samuel 10. The lot falls to him and the kingship of Israel, and when they go to look for him to say congratulations, he's missing. And he's found much later, embarrassed, hiding in the luggage. What's he doing there? Maybe he was just intimidated by all the accountability of being king. Maybe because he was being really humble. You know, I'm hiding out because you could find someone else, surely. As the story of 1 Samuel unfolds, the root of Saul's fear comes to light. In chapter 15, 24, he admits, I disobeyed God because I feared the people. Because I feared the people. Later on, Saul's caught in sin by Samuel the prophet. Saul had orders from God to destroy the Amalekites, to destroy them and all their livestock, but Saul didn't do that. And when the prophet Samuel confronts him in 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. He says, hey, Samuel, I know I've sinned, but come, come with me. Say a few nice things about me in front of the people so that they don't lose respect for me. Would you come? And notice, too, how he says to Samuel, your God instead of my God. So in fearful self-preservation, Saul, who was a giant of a man himself, he refused to fight Goliath. In fearful rivalry, he hunts David for years. In fearful jealousy, he throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan. And eventually, Saul takes his own life on the battlefield because he feared being dishonored by capture rather than fighting to the death. A Bible historian, he says, if Saul had learned to fear the Lord, 
he would not have feared his people or his enemies, but Saul's fear of man grew so great that it took his kingdom from him and killed him. But then we have David. But then we have David, who even at his worst is different from Saul. When David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his shocking adultery and murder, Saul made excuses, but David immediately responds, I have sinned against the Lord. With fear of the Lord, David confessed his sins rather than pretending. With fear of the Lord, David stood up to a giant rather than let God be slandered. With fear of the Lord, David refused to harm Saul even when he had him cornered in a cave and rather than take a shortcut to the throne. With fear of the Lord, David didn't hold grudges, but he showed kindness to Saul's son, Mephibosheth, and he wept over the death of his enemies. With fear of the Lord, David, at the end of his life, with full integrity, could say, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. (laughs) And David shows us that the fear of the Lord swallows up all other fears. It brings life and it brings blessing to others. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps you dedicated to God's commands and the unselfish treatment of others. The fear of the Lord, the proper fear of the Lord does all that. See, Christians, we mustn't forget that God's approval has already been given to us in Christ. We've been accepted by God, and so rather than being enslaved by others' expectations and, and, and opinions of us, we get to joyfully obey God, free of all that. We just get, get to do what God wants us to do. And we find our security in His approval. We don't need to chase after anybody else's. And instead of serving people out of fear, we get to serve them out of joy, out of joy. Instead of striving for recognition from people, we just want to please God by imitating Christ. This is the fear that swallows up all other fears. When you fear the Lord, what God thinks of you is greater than what anyone else thinks of you. That's what you have in your head. What God thinks of me is greater than what anyone else thinks of me. Wesley So is an American chess grandmaster. In 2017, he was the United States chess champion. Big stuff. He's also a Christian, converted at 20 years old, And he says on a regular basis, he receives emails from strangers lecturing him about the dangers of following Jesus. Out of pity or disgust, they wonder how he, the world's second-ranked chess player, could be so weak-minded. Identifying openly as a Christian will interfere with sponsorship, support, and invitations to events. He's been told that spending time reading his Bible, praying, and going to church will inevitably weaken his performance. People plead with him to at least keep quiet. They say thanking God in public is going to make you look ridiculous. Do you see the temptation there to fear man? How does he respond? This is what he says. He says, God is the God of chess, and more importantly, the God of everything. Win or lose, I give him the glory. Even when I don't understand God's ways, I'm confident that his vision is much bigger than my own. 
Will I rise to become the world champion one day? Only God knows for sure. In the meantime, I know that he is a generous and loving father, always showering me with more blessings than I deserve. I content myself with playing one match at a time and practicing gratitude for my daily bread. What God thinks of him matters a lot more than what others think of him. And he's free. He's free. And when you fear the Lord, what God will do to you is greater than what others will do to you. When you fear the Lord, you know that what God will do to you is greater than what anyone else might do to you. There's a book called The Insanity of God by an author named Nick Ripkin, and he tells us what Chinese believers told him about the threats that they regularly receive for being Christians under their communist government. Listen to that interview. This is what the Chinese believers tell him. They say the security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. The police say, you have got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know what to make of that answer. <laughs> so they will say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police will threaten. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives, to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And then with fear of the Lord, the house church believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. The fear of what God will do to you swallows up the fear of what others might do to you. There's a great rhetorical question that the Apostle Paul asks in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He asks, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's a good question for you to ask yourself today. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? The fear of the Lord is the antidote to all those anxieties. It's a trembling love. It grows in the forgiveness of the cross, and it swallows up all other fears. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it helps us to know how you love us, how you long for us as a father longs for his children. Would you please help us to learn to fear you with rejoicing and trembling? Set us free in your fear, O Lord, I pray. Amen.